Hello and welcome to Extra Innings from the Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Center at the London School of Economics. I'm Denise Barron. So a group of LSE scholars recently got together to hear from Jeffrey Toulis, a professor at the University of Texas at Austin, who discussed whether or not Barack Obama has been a transformative president. It's great to have uh, somebody here who can help us get leverage on that question and begin a a discussion. Uh, That's Peter Trubowitz, the director of the U.S. Center. He invited and introduced Jeffrey. Honored to be here. Um, So I want to take you back just for a second to the 2008 campaign just to remind ourselves how uh, hard it is to get our heads around the extraordinary change between 2008 and, and, and now. So in, in, in the primary campaign of 2008, some of you may remember, if you watched any of those debates or read about them, that Obama lost one of the early debates uh, because he responded to the question, is Hillary likable, with the answer, she's likable enough. Uh, and that was enough to suggest that he was uncivil and uh, breaking all the norms of good behavior for a presidential candidate. And now we have uh, Trump, in which uh, incivility is not only put up with, but is rewarded. Uh, But I want to focus my remarks on another moment of the 2008 uh, primary season, in which it wasn't in a debate, but uh, in an interview, Obama was asked about his vision for his presidency, and he said he wanted to be a transformative or transformational president. And and he explained that that meant he wanted to be like FDR or Reagan, and it got him in trouble for saying that Reagan marked this kind of reconstructive or transformative president, and not like Bill Clinton. Now, Bill Clinton was a very successful president. But Obama's point, and he was correct, was that he was not a transformative president. You can be successful without being transformative. So he wanted to be both successful and transformative. And I'm going to spend a few minutes uh, telling you what that means uh, in a few seconds. But before I do, let me just outline what I'm trying to do today with you, which is I thought about that at the time in 2008-9, and I wrote an article in which I argued, and we'll rehearse for you briefly later today, that Obama wanted to be a transformational president or transformative president on the model of FDR or Reagan. But if, in fact, he carried out the plans that he articulated for his administration, if he successfully did that, he could not be that kind of president. That, in fact, there was a mismatch between what he was proposing to do and the way he was proposing to do it and that kind of leadership. Um, uh, what, what I agreed to do when Peter invited me to talk to you was to say, well, you know, things have really changed now. That ironically, uh, I was one right about him in the first term. He was not able to be a transformative president. But the mechanisms of failure in doing that actually have set the conditions for not only an unusually successful second term, but have laid out the resources by which he could actually become, over time, a transformational or transformative president. It's not going to be entirely or even mainly up to him. It will be, as I'll explain in a minute, 
uh, dependent on what his successor or successors do. Um, but whatever his successors had done, had he not won re-election, he couldn't have become a transformative president. So, um, so let me say a little bit about what a, what a, what a transformative president uh, is. Um, uh, there are two literatures in political science that speak to this. One was, which I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, was actually uh, uh, led by Peter's dissertation advisor, Walter Dean Burnham, who wrote about something called critical elections. And the idea was that some elections in American politics are much more important than others, uh, and that those elections set the agenda uh, for American politics for a generation, for often 30 or more years, such that after the success of one of those elections, um, uh, um, partisans on both sides of the nominal political divide between Republicans and Democrats hew to the agenda set by the winner of such a, a critical election. Um, in a similar vein, and I'll spend a little more time on this version of it, a political scientist at Yale named Stephen Skoranek uh, argues that presidents operate in something he calls political time uh, in addition to secular time, with secular time being our familiar chronological history from one point to the next, that's secular time. Political time is a cycle of regime building and regime decay, with regime referring to partisan regimes, the sort of thing that I was alluding to when I said that Dean Burnham suggested certain elections trigger a change in the agenda of American politics. Now, I want to pause and just say a, bit, a little bit more about this because I think that this is a big difference between American and British politics. Uh, in American politics, it's much harder to induce synoptic political changes, uh, but it's also much harder to undo synoptic political changes once they are uh, induced. Um, I won't go into all the reasons why that is, but it's a combination of the history of our particular two-party system and our complicated constitutional order that, um, uh, that uh, elects individuals to different branches of the government rather than forming a government as you do uh, periodically with each uh, major election in the UK. So uh, it's sometimes lamented in the United States that we can't form a government. Um, uh, but the analog to forming a government in the United States are these moments in which a reconstructive leader transforms the political order such that their agenda becomes the agenda for the next generation. Um, it, that's relatively rare, as I say, but when it happens, you know that you have succeeded when the side that was vociferously opposed to you begins talking in the same language that you use, despite the fact that they themselves had opposed that language just shortly before. So two examples to illustrate that would be uh, during the time that FDR is running, uh, particularly after uh, his uh, first term. Uh, um, he, um, while he's running, the Republicans are saying that he's a left-wing crazy socialist. He wants government 
programs, he wants Social Security, uh, and things like that. Uh, but after he wins, and wins so decisively four terms, Republicans themselves uh, claim over time that it would be unpatriotic for somebody to claim that they're trying to undo Social Security, the very thing that they were opposed to. Uh, President Bush, for example, uh, introduced some policies to try to privatize or at least give the option of having private accounts uh, annexed to Social Security and got pilloried for trying to undo something that the Republican Party had historically been opposed to. So that is a piece of evidence of the sort of hegemony of the New Deal liberal order once it takes establishment. The same thing can be said when uh, the Republicans uh, achieve that kind of victory. So in Reagan's case, for example, his victory is so decisive that you have a Democratic president like Bill Clinton saying the era of big government is over. The era of big government, of course, wasn't over, but the idea that the era of big government should be over was the Republican idea. It was opposed forthrightly by Democrats for throughout the Great Society in the LBJ years, but once Reagan uh, made conservatism no longer a dirty word, it made liberalism a dirty word. Uh, somebody like Bill Clinton, who was a Democrat, says the era of big government uh, is over. Uh, so the reconstructive or the transformative president is the president that comes at a moment in time in which it's possible to do that in which it's possible to actually change the political discourse of the United States so that the opposing party has to adopt your agenda and to talk in your terms. Now that doesn't mean uh, that presidents can't be successful if they aren't transformative in that way. And so, for example, Bill Clinton, despite the scandals and all that, was a very successful president. But success means something different. Success if you're not a transformative president, means, for example, that life from the point of view of your party is much better than it would have been had the other party won, which is to say, yeah, there's sort of Republican policies, for example, welfare reform, but it's a better version of welfare reform than it would be if, if, the, if the other side had been in, but it's, it's still not the Democratic progressive agenda. Um, so um, the fellow at Yale conceptualized all this, uh, uh, Steve Skoranek, by saying, that, look, if you think of uh, political parties that establish this agenda-setting function in these reconstructive moments as either ascendant or decaying, uh, and if you, if you think of the person who's running for office as either affiliated with an ascendant regime or with a decaying regime, or opposed to an ascendant regime, or opposed to a decaying regime, you have four sorts of situations in which you can be president. And that's what I've outlined up here, on the left here. Uh, if the regime is ascendant, so for example, if we're in the Reagan era, or if we're in the FDR era, uh, and, uh, and you're of the same party, you would be in that box there. So Truman for uh, Truman for um, for the FDR era and Bush uh, for the uh, Bush one for the Reagan era would be, uh, and he had labels for these different categories. I the only one we're really interested in is the one at the bottom here, 
is the ascendant, the previously ascendant regime decaying, in which there's a moment for an opposition candidate to forge a new regime. Uh, and the examples of that having been in the past are FDR with the decaying regime, being Hoover and so forth, and Reagan with the decaying, the decay marked by Jimmy Carter and the end of the Great Society of the Deal era. And the question is, is Obama at that moment in political time? Um, and uh, it's actually hard to say at the moment that it's happening. It's easier to say as you look back on these things. But I'm going to try to say anyway, even though it's hard to say. Um, all right. So uh, the first point I want to make is, is what I mentioned at the outset, which is that, um, uh, that when Obama ran in 2008, he simultaneously claimed that he wanted to be a transformative president, wanted to do big things, not like Bill Clinton, small ball, going to be big ball. Um, and at the same time, he, he made it uh, impossible to be uh, that kind of president. Why? The reason for that is that the core of the hope and change campaign was what he called post-partisanship. He said, I want to be the first post-partisan president. Um, post-partisanship was an interesting and complex notion. A piece of it was familiar. A piece of it was what we used to refer to as bipartisanship, which was... I'm going to be open to deals with the other side so that we could get something better, uh, put something together that was acceptable to more people. But post-partisanship, ideally for him, meant, went farther than that, which was that public policy shouldn't be thought of so much in partisan terms, but be thought of as a more problem-solving enterprise, that we should be pragmatic and that he would take the best, eyes and best ideas and fully even embrace them if they come from the other side, and the other side should embrace ideas that he advances if, in fact, they withstood the test of uh, practical and scientific interrogation. Um, um, and uh, he opposed this not only to... Uh, partisanship understood as affiliation with party, but partisanship as it had developed in America in its polarized form, in which partisanship was so tightly wedded to ideology. Uh, he wanted to diminish the significance of ideology and elevate the significance of ideas. What's the difference? In the case of ideology, your conception not only of the solutions of, but of the problems are sort of fixed or reified. It's a reified form of ideas, such that you filter everything you, you, you uh, uh, argue for or hear through the lens of that ideology. Um, Ideas, on the other hand, means that you're subject constantly to revision if the ideas don't hold up. They are not hardened the way ideology is. Um, so an ideologue, for example, will often um, be contemptuous of, say, science on climate change. It doesn't fit the ideology. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Whereas an idea-oriented person would want to see, well, maybe it works in these aspects, but maybe it doesn't work in 
some other. So Obama advanced this postpartisan notion. He got pushback from both sides for doing this. From the conservative side, uh, one of the more articulate pushbacks was articulated by the political theorist at Harvard named Harvey Mansfield, who argued that this notion of pragmatism and a turn to scientific management and problem solving actually was a progressive notion invented in the Woodrow Wilson era and was a kind of camouflage for progressive ideas under the guise of being under the guise of being impartial and so forth. Uh, in fact, uh, Mansfield argued that Obama should be more forthright and just say he's a progressive instead of dressing it up with this academic sounding dispassionate fairness thing, which it really wasn't. And from the progressive side, they suggested that he was actually trying to be fair and dispassionate and all that, and he shouldn't be. He should be pounding away for our progressive uh, ideas. And nevertheless, he decided to advance and to push this notion of changing the way we talk in Washington. So the first point I want to make is, had he been successful at that, which he wasn't, and I'm going to say why or that he or, give some illustrations that he wasn't successful in a minute. But had he been successful, my first point is, he would have maybe been a transformative president, but not in the way that FDR and Reagan was, but by transforming the way we think about politics. It would, it would have transformed the meaning of transformation itself had he been able to accomplish that. Um, it would be as if, for example, FDR was known at the end of the New Deal not for Social Security, um, not for uh, um, uh, all sorts of uh, agencies that were formed uh, to deal with um, uh, mortgages and banking and all sorts of stuff, uh, not for the Civilian Conservation Court, not for any of that. It would have been as if FDR was famous for the Brownlow Commission, which introduced scientific management into the reorganization of the executive branch on the basis of nonpartisan civil service principles. If that had been what he had been, that was the image, that's the kind of transformation that Obama would have advanced had he been successful. But he was not successful. From day one, um, the uh, Republican Party, uh, led by people like the Senate majority, not the Senate majority leader then, but the Senate minority leader at the time, later majority leader, Mitch McConnell, uh, decided from the beginning that they would oppose anything that Obama proposed, no matter how meritorious, because their highest objective was to deny him a second term, and they thought the best way to do that would be to prevent him to get any credit, even shared credit, for any policy, no matter how desirable. <clears throat> this, is some, this is something actually, I don't know, uniquely new, but new in American politics. It, it, it's certainly uniquely new to the extent that this became the strategy of the Republican Party. Um, it's been written about Interestingly, by a book I commend to you by Mann and Orenstein, the title of the book is called It's Even Worse Than It Looks, as um, the title of the book. Uh, they have a series of books on Congress that starts out like, you know, it's bad. <laughs> and this one is, it's even worse than it looks. 
And uh, so I saw, heard him at a conference. They said, well, if, if that's the third book. If there's a fourth one, what's the title going to be? <laughs> so um, why is it even worse than it looks? Well, um, uh, at the beginning of the administration, there's some bills that you don't even, and we don't even know about because they were uh, proposed by the Obama administration but got nowhere. And one of them uh, was a bill that had been sponsored by John McCain, his opponent in 2008 election, co-sponsored with uh, a conservative Democrat, that Obama thought met his test for an intelligent piece of legislation that was reasonable on the merits, um, that he would be delighted to help John McCain, his defeated opponent, get whatever credit he wanted for to uh, advance the interests of the country. And he, Obama, would get credit not so much for the substance of that bill, but for being this postpartisan president who did something like give John McCain credit. That was too much credit for, uh, <laughs> for, for, for McConnell. And so they not only opposed it, they got John McCain to oppose his own bill that he had written. All right, now, there are a series of, of many of these instances. The most famous, of course, being Obamacare itself, which we think of as Obama's pet project because it's named Obamacare. Obamacare is a Heritage Foundation plan. That's a Republican think tank. A Heritage Foundation plan that was devised in opposition originally to Hillary Clinton's Democratic plan for health care. So the Democrats in the United States' first preference would be for something like Britain, or Britain, as I'm gathering, maybe it may be uh, changing, uh, but at least the Britain that I admire from afar is the one with single-payer health care. That was the preference of Democrats. Um, and that wasn't even on the table, wasn't even discussed. Obama said, no, that's not going to fly in America. I, I understand we have a different history here. So let's come up with something new fit for us. And so the second democratic idea was something called the public option, which would be an option that you have, but not mandated of everybody that was subsidized by the federal government. And then that was jettisoned in favor of the Heritage Foundation plan, which was the one that was, was basically private insurance companies, but everybody um, competing with each other in marketplaces that were formed in each state, by the way, um, and um, um, and that um, and, and that required uh, everybody to join. Everybody had to get insurance so as to uh, as to make the thing viable. This was the piece of it that became controversial and became a Supreme Court case and so forth. It was a Republican idea is the only point I want to make uh, and. Um, Obama advanced it uh, and then uh, tried to negotiate it uh, fairly, uh, met resistance at every step of the way, had a few Republican senators willing to maybe consider negotiating, brought them to the White House and said, what do you want? They said, we would like tort reform. That's the idea that you would limit the amount that people could sue doctors because that was driving medical care costs up in the United States, allegedly. Well, Democrats had done studies and thought that tort reform didn't hold up, but Obama said, you know, some studies say there may be something to it. I'm willing to give you tort reform. 
and the Republicans said, you know, we don't want you to do anything. Right? For, I, I thought we wanted tort reform. Uh, we don't want anything. We don't want Obamacare. So he ended up against his own desire having to have a, um, a party line uh, vote, which he won, because that was the point at which uh, Democrats control both houses of Congress. Um, and uh, because of that, he then was painted by the other side uh, as a uh, as a intractable partisan and uh, suffered great losses in the midterm election of 2010, where the Republicans took over the um, the, um, the Congress. Um, so, um, so the point is that Obama tried to be a kind of transformational president, but not a partisan one. He tried to be a post-partisan president and failed at that. All right. now, the Republicans responded with what I'm calling hyper-partisanship. What, what makes it hyper-partisanship as opposed to just traditional partisanship is the idea that you are wedded more to your party and its political prospects at all costs, that is the actual literal people in your party and its prospects at all costs, including the cost of the ideas that your party supposedly stood for. So that even if you're an ideologically coherent party, which, which the Republican Party was, you would actually prefer to give up your ideas and in, in the service of defeating the other side rather than to advance. That's hyper-partisanship, the kind of thing that led to the opposition to the McCain bill. Um, uh, as a footnote, I think that that hyper-partisanship is the principal cause of the Trump phenomenon. Hyperpartisanship because it's put the Republican Party in a very, very difficult position now. Now they have a candidate who has actually won all these primaries uh, by pluralities, uh, who actually, I mean, Trump, in my view, might be an exti regime extinction appointment, <laughs> with regime referring not to the partisan regime, but to the whole constitutional order. But not so much because of the content of his policies, such as they are, because we don't know a whole lot about them, but because of the, his temperament, his narcissism, his authoritarianism, and all that. But if you look at the ideological side of Trump, he's actually for a lot of things that the Republicans are against, which has got them in a tizzy, has a lot of Republicans like Bill Kristol and the neoconservatives on the foreign policy side opposed to Trump. Um, but they're in an awkward position because the party has actually decided, well, you know, we've taken this position that we're for winning over our ideology. And so uh, they've just woken up to the cost of that. And there will be an internal war in the Republican Party over the fact of the, you know, distance between a party understood as one that stands for things and a party that only stands for winning with the hope of being sustaining for things uh, later on. So the hyperpartisanship set the condition for Trump, 
but it also set the uh, condition for Obama's possible traditional transformative role. Now, in 2008, to repeat, the reason he couldn't be a transformative role was the negative side of the point I just made, which is that he was standing for post-partisanship. The negative side of that is, it, is that he did not have a traditional public philosophy. Public philosophy is a set of ideas that ties together and justifies the particular policies that you're advancing in a way that will serve as resources for political discourse after you leave office for a generation. Now, for some reconstructive presidents, this public philosophy <coughs> is developed <coughs> before their president. That was the case with Reagan. He didn't develop it by himself. Barry Goldwater did, and the National Review, and Buckley, and all sorts of people. But there was a conservative agenda, and a lot of ideas that went along with it that he had schooled himself on, campaigned on, and so forth. It was true of Jefferson in the first Reconstructive presidency, Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson. It was true of Lincoln, who had thought through the whole slavery issue in his Senate campaign before he ran for president. Um, it was not true for FDR. FDR's public philosophy developed as the New Deal developed, rather than you know, being fully fashioned as a coherent view beforehand. Um, so Obama didn't have a public philosophy, and he didn't really even have the rudiments of a public philosophy in the first term. And this was partly due to his commitment to post-partisanship, and it was partly due to the circumstances that he faced upon taking office, which were, as you recall, a global financial crisis. Um, a meltdown of our uh, banking industry in the United States, the, bu the housing bubble and so forth. Um, and so uh, he began with practical problems that required him to deal with issues very much uh, on the agenda that was already on the table. Partly the New Deal agenda, but also partly the bipartisan agenda of just getting the country back uh, uh, um, uh, uh, in shape. So, for example, the, um, the, uh, some of the bailout of the banking industry was agreed to during the campaign in a meeting in the Oval Office with Bush and McCain, although McCain didn't know what to say. That was, he was sort of tongue-tied, but Obama just stepped up and made a deal, said, we've got to save the country. It's, it's fit with his post-partisan idea, but it also fit with the existing set of political priorities. Uh, he had a stimulus package. Now, it turned out to be the biggest stimulus package uh, maybe in U.S. history. I just read the other day that in, in real dollar terms, it was more dollars than the entire New Deal. But it was for a limited set of policies that were not breaking new ground uh, in a public philosophy sense. So what would have been those new policies if he had had a partisan point of view and if he had not been constrained by the circumstances of the time. They would be things like environmental policy, climate change, thinking anew about foreign policy with respect to terrorism and globalization, things that really hadn't fit very well in the, in the existing large schemes of thinking of either party. Um, well, he 
uh, didn't get to articulate that stuff or to do anything aggressive and systematic at the outset of his, uh, uh, of his first term. Now, he did do a lot of stuff, and I'm not going to go through it. He did do, in a way, what he said, practical problem solving. He got things, some things passed. He got Obamacare was upheld by the courts eventually. He did stuff, and, because, and the country's economy improved dramatically. It beat every metric, by the way, in 2013 that Romney had promised as against Obama. Obama beat Romney's metrics uh, in terms of GDP and unemployment rates and all that sort of stuff. So he was successful in that sense, and he got reelected, but he didn't change the agenda of American politics, and therefore he was not then or then possibly a transformative president. But in this term, starting in his uh, seventh year, he has been unbelievably successful in ways that have laid down the resources for, for the possibility of a post-partisan, uh, I'm sorry, a, a reconstructive uh, presidency. How did he do this? And what did he do? I'm just going to say this and then I'll turn it over to you. First of all, um, well, he became a partisan, which is to say, um, all right, you guys keep saying I'm a partisan and I'm going to be one, and he, which meant he aggressively used the unilateral tools that he had at his disposal in the office to do things without, the, without having to get the assent of Congress. So he issued lots of executive orders. He concluded executive agreements in the place of treaties. He made recess appointments, which is to say appointments that didn't require the consent of the Senate because the Senate w was out of, when it was out of uh, uh, session. Um, he made administrative regulations, uh, which we do in the United States usually to carry out the details of legislation. He did it, in effect, in place of legislation. He used speeches to articulate a genuinely new public philosophy that he hadn't done in the first term, and the most uh, impressive of these was on race, which he had avoided the entire first term. His best speech, the first term of his office, was the speech he gave during the campaign defending himself against Reverend Wright, in which you had all the talk show people saying, John Stewart saying, finally a president talks to us like an adult, like we're adults. That was the Reverend Wright def the defense speech of and his distancing himself from Reverend Wright and saying what he really thought about race and what a complex uh, issue it was. After that, though, when he became president, he just put that issue aside to the chagrin and dismay of the black American community. In this seventh year, though, he took it up with gusto and gave a series of speeches that matched the eloquence of that first speech in Selma, Alabama, uh, on the anniversary of the Selma March in Charleston. I don't know if anybody saw this one. It's a good YouTube where he starts, breaks into the Amazing Grace song um, in his response to the Trayvon Martin uh, issue and in a few other areas. He took advantage of the fact he got pushed into supporting and, and, and uh, articulately supporting gay marriage by um, Biden. 
uh, jumping the gun on that. Um, and uh, he had in the first term been for civil unions, but not for gay marriage. But as soon as um, the courts uh, warmed up to the idea, he led on it, and he made it a, uh, a big feature of a larger sort of civil rights agenda, which then morphed into his unequivocal support for transgender rights, which just got a boost a week ago from uh, a very, very eloquent speech by Loretta um, Lynch, who was his black, first woman black attorney general. He had had the first man black attorney general. Um, and uh, all of these things taken together uh, uh, are the resources for a new era in civil rights. Uh, on the environment, he uh, did a few things that uh, many people don't know about, but are resources uh, to, be, uh, to be used in fashioning his new public philosophy. He protected the world's largest and most uh, massive marine reserve in the, in the Pacific with an executive order. There's a, little, there's a little known law in the United States that allows presidents to declare places national monuments and sort of make them parks, national parks or national protected areas that began with Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, and he used it for that purpose and for 19 other parts of the United States. Um, he made a climate agreement with China, which Peter and other people would know more about than me. Uh, um, he, uh, he had the recent international climate control agreement that took years to get, and some people are saying, well, you know, it's got a long way to go from that agreement to actually controlling the climate. It has changed the agenda of discourse in the United States, this, the signing of that international climate control agreement. It has diminished significantly the ability of Republicans to deny the idea that there is a problem that needs solving. It has uh, really changed the way people talk about global warming, which is now on the political agenda. He has adopted a climate action plan uh, through executive orders that have already taken effect and set our nation on the path of reducing carbon emissions by 3 billion metric tons by 2000. 30 with uh, and, and this this plan actually includes uh, now working 57 renewable power uh, programs on federal land which he had control to be able to do without having to get legislation from uh, Congress um, he's taken independent action on immigration and therefore put the comp the democratic spin on how to think about immigration. Uh, on that issue. He's opened relations with Cuba after, this is all just in the last year, as you know. He secured the Iran nuclear agreement. Um, and the Iran nuclear agreement and the climate control thing and his earlier intervention in Libya, which actually occurred uh, earlier and is, is thought to be in some ways a failure because of what's happened in Libya and and and, um, and and Obama himself says he wished he had given more thought to what what you do after you depose somebody but the longer term lesson of Libya I think speaks in his favor in terms of being a reconstructive or transformative president because the Libya action showed that it was possible for there to be an effective military 
multilateral action in which the United States did not carry the burden and just allow some flags to be attached to planes that were in the back of us doing everything. Uh, he got a lot of grief for so-called leading from behind, which was a bad turn of phrase, but not at all a bad concept. The idea was not at all bad. And so he proved, in other words, that NATO could be an effective, coordinated military force if called upon to do that sort of thing. And therefore, he set the groundwork for uh, arguing for an, uh, a new kind of foreign policy in which the United States is fully engaged in the rest of the world, but is not actually carrying the water for everybody else. By the way, something that I think is ripe uh, for exploitation in the United States uh, for a new foreign policy, as Donald Trump uh, unwittingly has realized, Donald Trump has made a big piece of his campaign, uh, the idea that uh, NATO countries got to pay their fa fair share. Um, well, the truth is there's something to that, not Trump's version of it, but Obama's version of it. Um, um, and one of the differences, one of the reasons that I think social policies in the Europe have in many, many cases been much more successful than they have been in the United States is that we're, we've been carrying a lot of the burden for, uh, the, for, for, for Europe's defense that Europe didn't have to carry for itself, and therefore we didn't have as much discretionary money to take care of our social needs. So that rebalancing can occur under a new uh, foreign policy that he has begun to articulate. So those are just a few of the things that he's done in this last term. I want to turn it over to you. I have more stuff I can say, but I just want to, uh, I just want to conclude by summing up that, that uh, what, what, what Obama did in the second term is he became partisan and he put in place a series of policies that are successful that can be interpreted in a new, now just emerging public philosophy. Whether, this be, whether that means he becomes a reconstructive or transformative president depends on what happens next. If Hillary does what she says she wants to do, which is run on the Obama legacy, that means that she will, in fact, be articulating this in some fashion the way that I've just laid out. So she will help to articulate the public philosophy that is, that is, uh, that is implicit here. Um, of course, if she loses and Trump wins, there are a number of possibilities. The more obvious one is he doesn't become the transformative president, that all this stuff is undone. Some version of a Republican agenda uh, is, uh, is, is continued. Um, but there's also the possibility that Trump is such a failure as a president that the Obama legacy's initial loss then becomes successful down the line. I'm finishing a book with a student that Peter and I shared, uh, who teaches at Williams now, Nicole Mello, called Legacies of Loss in American Politics. And our thesis of that book is that there are these amazing losers who lose big, but then win down the line. The Anti-Federals, Andrew Johnson, Barry Goldwater are our examples. So Obama could become that kind of <laughs> reconstructed president if Trump won. Or he may, or or this may be all for naught. Uh, so I think that the greatest possibility for 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 Obama to become a transformative president is for Hillary Clinton to succeed. 
Great, Jeff. Thank you very much. So that's it for Extra Innings here at the ballpark. Thank you so much to Jeffrey Toulis. The Ballpark is produced by Denise Barron, that's me, with contributions from co-hosts Chris Gilson and Sophie Donselman, and also with help from the LSE's High Five Bid Fund and the U.S. Embassy here in London. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rhea Rangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. They're the best. The content and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. We'd love to know what you think of the show. Let us know on Twitter at LSE underscore ballpark or send us an email at uscenter at lse.ac.uk. We'll feature your opinions, tweets, emails, and audio recordings on an extra innings podcast later this season. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.